Jeremiah 33 is where we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we pray your blessing on on the teaching of your word tonight. And uh, Father, I already know where we're going. I thank you for it. I'm I'm so encouraged. And exactly what Glenn prayed a moment ago, I believe you'll show us, Father, the path to obedience. Uh, We want to be an obedient people. We really do. We know that we have a sin nature. We know there's a rebellious streak that runs through humanity and runs through each of our lives. And we hate that rebellious streak. And we would do away with it, Father. And we ask that we would learn to do just that, to do away with it, to die to self and live to Christ. And we pray that in these words, across these three chapters, Lord, you spoke through Jeremiah uh, 2,500 years ago plus, 2,600 years ago. Lord, that these words would speak to our hearts today. And we believe they will because your Holy Spirit makes all of your word relevant in any generation. So teach us tonight, Lord, and give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin chapter 33, we left last week Jeremiah incarcerated. He's been there all week. And as we come now to chapter 33, he's still in prison. But the word of the Lord, just note this, it keeps coming. It just keeps coming. In that cell, Jeremiah receives the entire book of Consolation. The four chapters, chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33, that make up the book of Consolation, as some call it. The most encouraging section in the entire book, the entire scroll, all of the prophecies of Jeremiah right here. And he's given this encouraging section in prison while he's under lock and key. Tonight we're going to hear the two final prophecies of that book of Consolations in chapter 33 before moving on. And it impresses me because you can toss the preacher into prison. And you can bind the messenger with manacles. But you cannot shackle the Word of God. You just can't keep it from going out. And should you ever be concerned that freedoms are being taken away in our country or in this world... Don't worry, the word continues to go out. Now I have aligned myself, and I believe you have too, to the word, to getting the word out. That is our call, get the word out. Get the message out however we can, and don't worry when it seems like you've been muzzled, because the muzzling of Satan only serves to amplify the word of God. And think about it, John was exiled to Patmos. What did we get? The revelation. It's marvelous. So many of the great passages of Scripture that we have were given when the man, when the human uh, receiver of that word was in jail or in exile or sent off by himself. Remember what Jesus said as we looked at this on Sunday after raising Lazarus from the dead. He said in John 11.44, Unbind him, let him go. Because as we said, that's what Jesus does. He unbinds us to life. His word is unbinding. It can't be bound, nor does it bind. Note that as well. God's word is not a binding thing. It doesn't tie you down. It frees you to live. It unbinds us for freedom in Christ, which is why I believe Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, But the Word of God is not imprisoned. Can't bind the Word. Well, God knows 
when weary hearts need gracious words. And so even in prison, even in exile, he speaks his words. So he does to Jeremiah, and so he does to his people, even those already in exile, as we will see. If you're a note taker, I'll give you five points to follow tonight. The first two points are prophecies here in chapter 33. And the first point is the uninterrupted line. Verses 1 through 18, the uninterrupted line. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is His name. That is, Yahweh is His name. I am is His name. A reminder of the great and glorious name of God given to Moses through the burning bush, at the burning bush, there on Mount Horeb, the Lord is His name. Call to Me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Imagine that. There are things we do not know. (laughs) There are things we will never know. But God is the great revealer. And He loves to speak those truths to us. He loves to mature us and grow us in His Word. It's why He gives His Word. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword while they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, can I stop right there? While all this is going on, the horror of the siege... The siege ramps that are built up to try and block, to keep out the Babylonians. Built of the houses of Jerusalem. That's how desperate it was. People are tearing their houses apart to use it for stone and wood to build against the siege ramps to stop the inflow, the onslaught of the Babylonians. And it's in the midst of all this horror that he says in verse 6, Behold, I will bring it to health and healing. And I will heal them. And I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be, it there in verse 9 is Jerusalem, the city. Jerusalem, it will be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, Yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. That is, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitants and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, There will again be in this place, which is waste, without man or beast, 
and in all its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. That's just remarkable. While the cacophony of the Babylonian army is screaming out, while the noise of war is all the way encircling the city, while Jerusalem and at this point only two other cities even stand in all of Judah, God is talking about how He's going to restore the people. What He's going to do in days yet coming. He declares a full and complete restoration. A total restoration of the fortunes of Judah and Israel. Note that he calls them the fortunes, verse 7. I'll restore the fortunes of Judah, the fortunes of Israel. I don't want you to misunderstand this word fortune because this isn't the lottery. This isn't the exaltation of riches and wealth. Oh, the fortunes, they're going to have treasure chests galore that they're going to open up. That's not what he's talking about. Divine restoration is not talking about the superficiality of shekels. This is not fortune like we think of it. The word here, fortunes, is shebut in the Hebrew, and shebut literally means captivity. The direct translation is, I will restore the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at the first. I'm going to bring my captives home. That's what he's saying. This place is going to be restored and rebuilt because the people, my people, are coming back. I'm going to bring them back into the land. I will restore them. But gang, this is big. This restoration is huge. Verse 6 talks about health and healing. An abundance of peace and truth. Verse 9, the name of Jerusalem is the equivalent of joy, praise, and glory. Verse 11, the voice of joy and gladness are heard throughout the city streets. And note this, if you look again at verse 11... We also hear the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. What are you saying? I I think that's Jesus in the church. Now it could be just an allusion to the joy that comes with weddings. I've been in Jerusalem when a wedding was taking place. And it was a lot of fun just to stand back and watch as the people dance through the streets and the bride and the groom come. I mean, it was an amazing thing going on there. And it was very joyful but I think we're talking about more. And it's totally my opinion. I can't back it up by anything other than they're called the bride and the bridegroom. But they're there. They're there in this time of great joy. And my friends, you got to know the church and Jesus will be there at this time of great joy. Taking part in all that is going on. Verse 13 has a precious phrase in it. Actually, verse 12 right before it tells us the shepherds will rest their flocks. Health and healing. Health in verse 6. If you set aside the desire for wealth, the desire for health is probably second in our nation. And God says, I'm bringing it. I am bringing total health. The word health here. I love this word. Arukah in the Hebrew. Get that down. Next time you're at the gym and someone says, hey, how you doing? I'm just working on my Arukah. (laughs) Arukah. Health is literally here new flesh. I could go for that. 
Because it doesn't matter what I eat or how I work out, this old flesh reminds me it's old flesh. You know, things don't work the way they used to. Bones creak when they didn't used to. Muscles get sore when they didn't used to. I still have the same flesh no matter how I work it, no matter how I pursue health. But the health and healing that Jesus offers, that Jesus says He will bring, is new flesh. New flesh. Not the old flesh made healthy. This is restoration by transformation. Marvelous. But it's a transformation that still eludes Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a great city. It's a great place to visit. I hope you're going to a year from now when we go in, in March. But this transformation being talked about here, this prophecy of the Lord, eludes the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is not a city of peace. It is a city of great tension. It's a place that causes trembling. Right? It's a cup of reeling, Zechariah says, to all the nations gathered around. It is the hotbed of tension in the world. It's the reason at the very core of terrorism in the world. Not just Jerusalem, but also the Temple Mount. So the prophecy here is yet future. It's not one that's ever been fulfilled. It's not one that we've ever fully seen. And that is health and restoration and peace and truth and rest and all of this going on, taking place with the bride and the bridegroom in Jerusalem altogether. This is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And the fulfillment of this includes all of the things that we've just listed and one more. Look at verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Some say that happened in Jesus' first coming. I disagree. Because we don't see justice and righteousness executed on the earth, not yet. Verse 16, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. The righteous branch bringing justice and righteousness to the world is Jesus the Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach, Ironside, in his commentary, said at that time, the veil that for centuries has covered their hearts will be removed. The lowly Nazarene, once rejected as an imposter, will reappear in glory to be accepted of all the people as the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord. Where will he execute this justice and righteousness, by the way? What does verse 15 tell you? He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. On the earth. This is very specific. Now, back in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, this same name was used. The Lord, our righteousness. as at the end of verse 16 there. Jeremiah 23, 6. The Lord, our righteousness. This is the name by which He will be called. Yahweh Sikhanu. The Lord, our righteousness. It's the name of Jesus in His coming kingdom. But here, the name is given to the city. Jerusalem is now called Yahweh Sikhanu. Interesting. Jesus is Yahweh Sikhanu, but so is Jerusalem. How does that work? It works because of Jesus' very presence in the city. 
By simply being there, Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, is there. Therefore, the city reflects that righteousness that belongs to Jesus. His presence there makes it happen. The inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem will bear and reflect the Lord our righteousness. It's actually not a new concept. It's been around a long time. It's totally consistent in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What does that mean? It means less is the righteousness of God. It means Devi is the righteousness of God. I mean, that's astounding. No offense, but that's astounding. That we bear the very righteousness of God. How's that possible? By His presence in our lives. The same that the city is called the Lord our righteousness because the Lord our righteousness is there. So you bear the righteousness of God because the righteous God is in you, is dwelling with you if you're born again. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you bear His righteousness. The Lord is my righteousness. Righteousness then and now is because of the presence of Jesus. So He's the Lord, our righteousness, and so is the city. By the way, there's another great parallel to this in Scripture, where the city is called as the people are called. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Who is the bride? The churches. Absolutely. Clothed in the righteous acts of the saints. By the way, righteous acts that He gave us to perform, not that we generated ourselves. But clothed as such, we are the bride. But listen. Revelation 21, verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21, 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now you hear that verse and you fully expect him to show you the church, right? I'm going to show you his wife. I'll show you the bride. Verse 10 says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Well, wait a minute. Lord, is the bride the church or is the bride the city? Yes. Both. The bride is the church. The bride also happens to be the inhabitants of the city, which is why the city is called the bride, because that's where the bride resides. That's where the bride lives. Just as Jerusalem and the Millennial Kingdom bears the name of its chief resident, Yahweh Sidkenu, so the new Jerusalem, following the Millennial Kingdom, shares the identity of its chief residence, the church. If you want to know where you're going to live on into eternity, your zip code is New Jerusalem. I'm going to start writing it on my letters right now. Rick Crawford, 421 Quinn Drive, New Jerusalem, Washington State. That really doesn't work, does it? But that's where we will be. And I hope you understand the the flow of that time-wise. Because the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ, where Jesus comes to rule and reign, as we're told here, on earth, executing righteousness and justice, on earth, he rules and reigns for a thousand years. What happens after that? Revelation 20 talks about the throne judgment. 
which is the judgment of all those who have rejected Jesus, but they have their day in court. Following that throne judgment, Revelation 21 and 22 takes us into the wonder of eternity. New heavens, newer, new Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem is the zip code of the church. If you want to learn more about that, go to the Revelation study online. You can study that out and think it through. Revelation 21 and 22. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Paul gives this beautiful accounting of how husbands and wives should interact in the ideal marriage that's found in Christ. He says husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. And then he quotes going all the way back to Adam, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I've used this in marriage ceremonies before, and it's been studied out and used multiple times in Bible studies and marriage conferences over probably 2,000 years. And yet... Paul ends the whole passage by saying, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The perfect marriage. Jesus the groom and the church his bride. Verse 17, continuing on in chapter 33. So we see this amazing thing happening. We see in the millennial kingdom, the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom is called Yahweh Sidkenu. After Yahweh Sidkenu, Jesus, who is present there. And verse 17, he goes on. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne in the house of Israel. And here's where we get to... Uh, Point number one that I gave you before, which is the uninterrupted line. The uninterrupted line, the Davidic line. It says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Some critics read that and they say the line has failed. That verse, therefore, has failed because history doesn't show a constant succession of Davidic leaders sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. After Zedekiah, it fell. There was never a king to be raised up after Zedekiah. Jesus came along, our great king, but he never sat on the throne in Jerusalem. He was hung on the cross outside the city. There has never been since Zedekiah. And even Zedekiah was not really in the line. So you got to go back to Coniah and Jehoiakim. You go back to Josiah, you go back all the way down the line, it ends, it seems that it ends with Zedekiah, but God says there will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So has it failed? Well, that's not what the verses claim. The verses don't claim that there will be someone sitting perpetually on the throne in Israel. Simply put, what the verse is telling us is David will never lack a descendant who could occupy the throne. There has always been a person in the line of David to occupy the throne in Jerusalem. Well, at least at least from the last king of Judah across 500 years to Jesus. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Luke 3, verses 23 through 38. The genealogies of Christ bear this out. They are there for this purpose to remind us the line of the kings did not fail. Oh, there wasn't a king sitting on the throne after Zedekiah, but the line continued. And the genealogy and the lineage continued all the way down to Christ Jesus. 
And in His resurrection, that line now continues perpetually into eternity. There is a king of the line of David ready to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He will occupy that throne, Yahweh Sidkenu, as we just saw in the previous verses. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 9-7, a familiar verse to all of you, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now we've talked about the Davidic line, that uninterrupted line, but here's something you might not have thought about before. The priestly line of Levi has not failed either. Look at verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Now I've shared this with a few of you in the past. That back in 1997, Israeli geneticists discovered the Kohen modal haplotype. Right? You all know what the Kohen modal haplotype is, right? It's called the Kohen gene. The Kohenim. Kohenim is the, is the name of the line of Kohen, which is the Aaronic priesthood. Not Moronic, Aaronic from Aaron. The, the priesthood, the high priestly line that comes down through Aaron, and the Levites, the Kohen, are the priests who served and worked in the temple. They discovered the Kohen gene. The Kohen modal haplotype. It's a unique genetic signature believed to be of the line of Aaron still present in today's Kohens, in the Kohenim today. The Levitical Aaronic priesthood, that gene has continued all the way down to present day. If you know a Jewish person who has the last name Kohen, probably of that line. And they can now verify this genetically by DNA. The DNA of the priests is different. Isn't that amazing? It's just bizarre. God does stuff like this. Deuteronomy 18 verse 5 says, The Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. What does that mean? It means there is still a place for the Levitical priesthood in the coming kingdom. You know, before we started all this studying through the Hebrew scriptures nine and a half years ago, I never would have guessed that. In fact, many of you know my concept of the future was Jesus comes and that's it. I've heard that from pastors. That, that's sad to me these days. What's your belief in eschatology? What's your belief in the last days? Oh, I believe Jesus is going to come and that's it. Can you expound on that a little bit? No, that's all I need to know. No, it's not. There's so much more. And part of this is that there is a place for the Kohanim. God has faithfully kept the uninterrupted line not only of David all the way down through Christ, but He has maintained the Levitical line. Why? Because just as Jesus is going to rule and reign, serving as king out of Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom, so in that kingdom the Levites are going to be reestablished in priestly roles. And it's a fascinating study to carry through. I'm not going to go all into it tonight. Other than to say... There are passages that explicitly teach that the Levites will begin even some of the sacrifices that they did before. Why that? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. In Him there's no need for sacrifice anymore. The sacrifices in Israel, in the Millennial Kingdom, will serve similar to the way communion serves for us today. That is, in looking back to what has been accomplished. 
Not in looking forward. Originally the sacrifices were to look forward to the coming of the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world, Jesus. But in the Millennial Kingdom, sacrifices will be reestablished to look back and praise God for what He did in Jesus. You see, we're going to have to teach a whole new generation after generation for a thousand years of people who don't know all the things that took place before. And rather than a revised history, they're going to have history played out right in front of them as the Levitical priests are reestablished. Now, I realize this presents a problem for the amillennialist. This is a person who believes that we're currently in the kingdom and the old Levitical priesthood is obsolete and has been replaced by the church. Well, doesn't Peter call us a royal priesthood? Absolutely. And yes, we will rule and reign with Jesus as priests in His kingdom, but our priesthood will be of a different sort. The Levitical priesthood, based on the Hebrew Scriptures, will be reestablished and will function. And if you want to study this some more, study Ezekiel 40-48, through or you can just wait, we'll be in it by the end of the summer. You can study Isaiah 66, verses 21-23. through Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19, which all further support God's promise to reestablish the Levitical priesthood in the coming kingdom age. Again, it doesn't preclude our priestly calling, but it does recall a role given with covenant exclusivity to the Kohanim, to the priests. Malachi 2, verse 4, Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, declares the Lord, that my covenant may continue with Levi. Okay, so understand the priesthood of Levi and there's the priesthood of of believers. What about the priesthood of Jesus? Because I recognize there are other verses that say He will be both priest and king. What about that? Could that not be what He's talking about when He says here in verse 18, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before Me. So the Davidic line reaches Jesus, right? So perhaps the Levitical priesthood, that's also talking about Jesus. And it can't. A, Jesus didn't come from Levi. He came through Judah. B, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He is a Melchizedekian priest. And it's one of those cool, deep truths in Scripture. Jesus is of a greater priestly line than the line of Levi. Hebrews 7 verse 15 says, This is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Study about him in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, this interesting uh, character who comes along, this priest, this king of Salem, he's called, which Salem means peace. He was the king in Jerusalem. Genesis 14, Abraham's coming back. Here comes Melchizedek, king of Salem. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he's king of righteousness and king of peace. And this guy in in days past comes out of Jerusalem. He brings bread and he brings wine to break with Abraham. Abraham offers him a tenth of the spoils of the war that he has just won. In other words, he pays him a tithe in worship. Who is this Melchizedek? If you want to learn more, Hebrews 7, it's fascinating. Talks about Melchizedek and uses him as a comparison to Christ. And there are some who believe that perhaps Melchizedek was, is a Christophany, that is an Old Testament appearance of Christ himself. Well, who believes that? <laughs> I think it was. And he goes on and says, 
If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priestly rule of Jesus was never limited to the unbroken line of Levitical DNA. Jesus' priesthood was and is and will ever be eternal and righteous. He is unique. He is unlike any other. And so the priests being talked about in verse 18, Levitical priests, are the Levitical priests, not Jesus. And of course, the king in the line of David in verse 17, yes, that is Jesus being talked about there. Well, this brings us to the final prophecy of Jeremiah's book of Consolation. And it's number two in our notes tonight. The unbroken covenant. The unbroken covenant. Verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day, and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, well then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Glenn was praying. The other thing that jumped out in his prayer to me tonight was talking about how we won't be able to count the number of people worshiping around the throne. And the thought just hit me. Side note. The thought hit me while he was praying. Man, that's an encouraging word if you ever feel like the church is such a little presence in the world. If you ever feel alone in your faith, or like, man, nobody believes this stuff anymore, and it's shrinking, it's getting smaller and smaller, listen, while it may seem to be getting smaller and smaller to our eyes, in reality, it is getting bigger and bigger. And there will be a day when we worship before the Lord that we will be absolutely blown away by the mass of people, uncountable praising and shouting hallelujah to Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. But he says, I'm going to continue this line through David, continue this line through Levi, and my covenant is unbreakable. Unbreakable. The monarchy and the priesthood, these are the two pillars of the Torah theocracy. That is, the Hebrew, the Old Testament theocracy that God set up was that He would have a king on the throne because that's what the people wanted. So he gave a king, and then he had his priesthood, and these are the two pillars, monarchy and priesthood functioning together. These are the two modes of God's divine rule over his people Israel. And so he says, I will not break the covenant I made with David my servant. What covenant? 2 Samuel chapter 7. He had made it with David four centuries before this time. He said, David, I will build you a house. I'm going to build you. You're not going to build me a house. You're a man of war. Your son can do that build the temple, but I'm going to build you a house, David. And this covenant here, this unbroken covenant promise, this prophecy is a guarantee. It's reaching back to the Davidic covenant and saying, I will not break that. I have not forgotten about it. Remember what's going on right now. Babylon's cacophony outside the walls of Jerusalem. The city is going down. There's terror in the streets. And at that time, God says, I haven't forgotten. You can see all this. See, that's like life around us. It looks like it's all coming down. And God says, I haven't forgotten you. 
I am still right here. I still have a plan. I know it looks bad. I know you're in desperate straits, but I haven't forgotten. I am keeping my covenant. I am with you in this. Now, this is not the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, that we're going to talk about on Sunday. The new covenant, that's another prophecy. That's not what he's talking about here. This is simply the reaffirmation of the unbroken Davidic covenant. Verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken? Saying, The two families which the Lord chose, He has rejected them. The two families are Israel and Judah. Thus, they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. What's going on here? These are discouraged Jews. Okay, These are Jewish people who are looking at the house of Israel, house of Judah, and they're saying, God doesn't care anymore. He's rejected us. He doesn't love us anymore. It's over. We are now a forgotten people. But the Lord says in verse 25, Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, well then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. If someone says the church has replaced Israel, you take them to Jeremiah 33, verses 25 and 26. Because here God declares, not only have I not forgotten the two families, Israel and Judah, but I will restore their fortunes. The uninterrupted line, the unbroken covenant of his servant David. And again, it's amazing. The siege ramps, the onslaught, it's all taking place. And God is looking to the future. God is throwing out encouragement. God is saying, this is not the end of my people. Remember that if you're ever in a place where you feel like it's the end of your life. It's not. It's not over till Jesus says it's over. He has a plan. Now we leave the book of Consolations and we enter a phase of confrontations. The following chapters are more biographical really than prophetic, although there's some prophecy here. Chapters 34 through 38, which we won't get through all of tonight, they cover events that happened mostly during the siege of Jerusalem. Chapter 39 will deal with the fall of Jerusalem itself. Chapter 40 through 44 all contain events after the fall And then finally, in the closing chapters of the book, chapter 45 on through 51, are judgments of nine different Gentile nations. So that's where we're headed in all this. But chapter 34, verse 1, pick up this interesting story. Then uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, with all the kingdoms of the earth that were under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and against his city. So this is when the word came saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand, and you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak to you face to face, and you will go to Babylon." Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, 
you will not die by the sword. You will die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you and they will lament for you. Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah, verse 6 is cool to me, then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. Gutsy Jeremiah. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the remaining cities of Judah, that is Lachish and Azekah, for they alone remained as fortified cities among the cities of Judah. Those are the two cities I mentioned before. At this point in the prophecy of Jeremiah, we're down to three cities, Lachish, Azekah, and Jerusalem. The rest of Judah is fallen. So again, this is a time of extreme and dire straits for the people. Now, Verses 1 through 7 is actually a restatement of the prophecy that we heard back in Jeremiah 32. If you look back there, you don't need to right now, but Jeremiah 32 verses 2 through 5 is the same prophecy where God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go to Zedekiah and tell him you're going into captivity. You're going to see the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's taking you away, and you're going to die in Babylon. You will never come back to this land. God says, Jeremiah, tell Zedekiah. Jeremiah tells Zedekiah, and Jeremiah ends up in prison. So there's a restatement of that same prophecy that landed the prophet in prison in the first place. And that's why I'm so impressed with the tenacity of Jeremiah. And as we've studied through, I believe it's a tenacity that God has developed in the man. I don't think it was there at first. Go all the way back to chapter 1 and begin to read and follow him through in his calling and his whining and his complaining, which now has all but disappeared. And now when the Lord says, Jeremiah, go and speak this word, Jeremiah doesn't complain. He speaks the word. The prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. I'm impressed not only because Jeremiah had the guts to go speak to the king, this prophecy against the king, but also because Zedekiah was probably his friend. We see in other places, Zedekiah had a tendency, he respected Jeremiah. He listened to Jeremiah. He went and sought counsel from Jeremiah. Ironside says, Zedekiah seems to have had sincere respect for Jeremiah, frequently counseling with him, but he was a man of a double heart, and not upright before God, and there is a painful lack of obedience to the word of God as thus delivered to him. And here's Zedekiah's problem. Jeremiah brings the word, but Zedekiah simply couldn't see it. He couldn't see, number three in our outline, the unparalleled word. The unparalleled word. The Bible, the word of God, is so perfect in its precision It literally has no equal. It's it's far greater than any of the writings of any man. I once heard it says you could take all the great books of the Western world and stack them on a table and you would have to put the Bible on another table because they're not even in the same category. You can't find a writing of man that comes anywhere near the perfection of the Word of God. Granted, men wrote it, but God spoke it And those who refuse to believe it just can't see it. Refuse to believe the Scripture and you will not see the perfection. You will not understand how precise it is. 
You will miss the wonder of it if you refuse to believe it. That's why Peter wrote, and yes, I'm going to quote again, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Where does Scripture come from? From the mouth of God. And so what we have here, I mean, it's, this should overwhelm us, that we have the Word spoke by God Himself, that at any time, you can open to the Word of God and receive immediate counsel. And in addition to that, at any time you can pray to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the counsel of His Spirit. I mean, He leaves no stone unturned when it comes to a relationship with us. The unparalleled Word of God. And I want you to see something here. Because Jeremiah is not the only one who prophesied about the fall of Zedekiah. Jeremiah prophesies that in Jerusalem. But there's another prophet in Babylon at the same time. prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, they're like bookends of prophecy at this time. Jeremiah in, in Jerusalem, Ezekiel in Babylon, both prophesying the same things, or very similar things, about the future and about the current situation of Judah. So God, make sure no one misses this. My people who are already exiled, they get Ezekiel. My people going through the throes of of the siege, well, they get Jeremiah, and both prophets are speaking and holding up the Word of God. It's remarkable to me. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah from Jerusalem, Ezekiel from Babylon. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy of the fall of King Zedekiah. You've just heard Jeremiah's. Listen to Ezekiel's. Ezekiel 12.13 I will spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans yet he will not see though he will die there. A contradiction. Because Jeremiah says Zedekiah you're going to get eye to eye and face to face with Nebuchadnezzar and he will take you to Babylon. And Ezekiel says, you will never see Babylon. How does that work? I mean, Zedekiah must have thought one or both of these guys were off their scroll. What's the deal here? One of them has to be wrong. Either I'm going to see Babylon or I'm not going to see Babylon. One of them, they can't both be right here. How could they be? Well, of course, we know how they could be. Zedekiah did see Nebuchadnezzar. But his eyes get gouged out before he gets to Babylon, and so he never sees Babylon. It's the precision of prophecy. And throughout Scripture, Bible prophecy is that precise. Where you look at two together and wonder, how can this possibly work? And it always does. It's flawless. It's God's Word. Jeremiah 39.6 says, The king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah, The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. So Zedekiah would never see Babylon, but he would see Nebuchadnezzar. The unparalleled word of God, a precise prehistory of exact events. So anyone who says the Bible is in contradiction is just like Zedekiah. They are not seeing what's right before their eyes. They're blind. They can't see the truth of the Word. 
Well, Jeremiah now tenaciously calls out Zedekiah's waffling leadership. He takes it straight to the king. He tells him, and here's what he says. This is point number four. It's an unacceptable repentance. You're going to go into Babylonian captivity because there is an unacceptable repentance going on. What do you mean? Look at verse 8. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release or liberty to them. That each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew, his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Here's the deal. Zedekiah and the officials, and in fact, all the wealthy slave owners of Judea uh, of Judah made a solemn covenant before the Lord to release their slaves. At this time, so in these uh, ending days of Judah, it was already the sabbatical law. So they didn't come up with something special on their own. It was a law that they had not been keeping. The sabbatical law, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 18. The law said every seven years, every Hebrew slave must be set free. If someone gets themselves so much in hawk, so much in debt, that they have to enter indentured servitude to pay off that debt, you can only serve for seven years, and in the seventh, you're free. Sabbatical law. And all your debts canceled. And I've said before, I would love to see that in play with the credit card companies. Every, of course, we know what we would all be doing the sixth year. You know, you'd be buying up everything. The sabbatical law. Every seven years, Hebrew slaves must be set free. Well, they hadn't been doing it. They hadn't been doing it for dozens of years, hundreds of years. They had just kind of let that one go because, man, you got a good slave working for you. Why are you going to let him go? Especially if they still owe you. Well, they get together and Zedekiah proclaims, we need to keep the sabbatical law. Let's do this thing. That's a good thing. All right, Zedekiah. I don't think his motives were good. And I'll tell you why in a second. But they put this law back in place. This covenant was made with great seriousness. As you'll see, they do it at the temple. At the temple, they make the covenant. And to make the covenant, they take a calf and they cut it in half. And they lay the pieces one side across from the other and they walk through the path of blood. It's called cutting covenant. And it may sound familiar, Bible students. Genesis 15. This is what God did with Abraham. Remember the story? God said, Abraham, I want you to take these animals. I want you to cut them. Lay the pieces on either side. He does that. And then Abraham waits a long time and God doesn't show up. And we're told in Genesis 15-11 that Abraham is actually there batting away the fowl, the birds coming down to, to try and you know, get the meat. He's, he's fighting them away. And then Abraham gets tired and then he falls asleep. And as he sleeps, a burning oven goes floating between the pieces. It's the Lord floating between the pieces 
And he makes the covenant with Abraham that he's going to give him all the land. Abraham never walks through the pieces. Only God does. It's an unconditional covenant. Very, very solemn because what that meant to cut covenant like that in in those days meant basically we're going to walk through this path of blood together. And if you don't keep your part of the bargain, you're going to end up like this. You're a barbecue, dude. If you don't do your part, you keep your part of the covenant. That's how solemn this was. So when Zedekiah and all the people do this, they cut the calf, they walk between the parts. And this is a large group of people. I mean, it sounds like Zedekiah, the nobles, and all of the slave owners. So it could have been hundreds, we don't know. Walking through this path of blood, yes, we accept this covenant, we make this covenant, we're returning to the sabbatical law. Why the sudden return to the sabbatical law? And I think it was appeasement in distress. Well, Rick, you don't have a very high opinion of Zedekiah. No, I don't. (laughs) I think things are going bad. And Zedekiah says, you know, if there's anything to what this Jeremiah is saying, maybe if we can appease the Lord and if we can get a little more serious about some of these laws, He'll just make Babylon go away. Guess what happened? It seems to have worked. At first, Babylon packs up all of their tents, their siege ramps, everything, and they leave. Now what Zedekiah doesn't realize is they packed up to go fight Pharaoh Hophra. Not Jimmy Hophra, Pharaoh Hophra. Jeremiah 37 verse 5 tells us. And when the punishment that was surrounding Jerusalem appeared to be over, Zedekiah and all the people reneged on the covenant and they reclaimed their slaves. Look at verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, yet you turned and profaned my name. And each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and your female servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Release, the word release there in both in verse 17 is liberty. You proclaim liberty, well I'm going to set you free. You are now free from my protection, says the Lord. Because you have done this, I lift my covering from you. Verse 18, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. That's interesting. Abraham's not going to be there to bat away the birds of the sky then. 
Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon which has gone away from you. Behold, I am going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. The Lord doesn't ask for repentance simply for the sake of repentance. It's not a game that He's playing. And I know we've, we've talked many times about the fact that God doesn't play games. He doesn't say, I want you to repent. Because repentance is the religious act through which we come into uh, the presence of God. We repent and we do our part and then He does His part and, and we go forward together. That's a religious mindset. Repentance is for the heart of the person who repents. It's not a religious thing. It's, it's that, that kind of, Lord, get me out of this and I'll serve you mentality. Lord, I'm going to do this for you because I need you to do this for me. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. That kind of repentance never lasts because when the threat is over, so is the remorse. And that's what we see in the story before us. The threat leaves. They pack up and go out to fight another war. Ah, it worked. Okay, good. Then let's go back to the way we were living before. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. People sin and they say, I wasn't judged. Nothing bad happened. I'm cool. Just because judgment doesn't hit immediately. Oftentimes people take that as a sign. Ah, see the threat's over. There really isn't a threat. I don't need to worry about it. I can go back to living my own life. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.20, If, after they have escaped the defilements of the word, of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. And we see this played out in in chapter 34 here. Zedekiah and the nobles, had they kept this sabbatical covenant that they had made, would have gone, all of them, into captivity, yes, but they would have gone protected. As it is now, the vast majority would be slain, would be carcasses, would be corpses for the birds to chew on. Because now they've done a worse evil rather than accept the judgment of the Lord. Repentance. David understood repentance. Psalm 51.17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Real repentance. Not the pretense that we see with Zedekiah. Well, they reinstated the slavery, so God freed them of His protection. They profaned the name of the Lord in their covenant. And of course, verse 20 tells us, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky. And I don't think that's accidental. You know, Genesis 15.11, Abraham's batting away the birds of the sky to keep them from eating the flesh of that covenant. And here in this covenant, God says, I will allow the birds of the sky to eat your flesh. 
There's a direct connection there. Now, chapter 35 is in obvious contrast to the disobedience of Zedekiah and the people under his rule at that time. Chapter 35 is actually inserted. It's totally out of chronological order because it comes out of the days of Jehoiakim. So it comes two kings earlier, but Jeremiah places it here in his scroll as a contrast to see the difference between what we've just seen in chapter 34. He now shows us chapter 35, and it involves a group of people called the Rechabites, which are not a computer virus. Not a computer virus. Verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. And then I took Yaatzaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habatzaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber of Maasiah, the son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Just in case you're wondering which chamber they went in, verse 4 makes it very clear for you. Then I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. So God says, Jeremiah, get all the Rechabites together, bring them into the house of the Lord, and serve them pitchers of wine. Who are the Rechabites? The Rechabites, very quickly, were a nomadic group. They were nomadic sojourners living mostly in the region of the Negev who had moved up into Jerusalem because of the threat of Nebuchadnezzar. These were tent dwellers. They didn't build houses. They owned no vineyards. They didn't have flocks and herds so much. They lived as sojourners. First uh, Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55 traces their lineage to the Kenites who uh, were out of Midian, who were of the Midianites. So perhaps they were at one time Midianites, but through the line of Jethro. Okay, So they come through Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. That's where the tie is here, apparently. There's very little understood or known about them. We know in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 15, that their father, Jehonadab, or Jonadab as he's named here, helped King Jehu of Israel in a campaign against the house of Ahab and against all the Baal worshippers. Jehu, who, if you were here back when we studied Second Kings, was a very bloody king. And in obedience to the Lord, he wiped out the house of Ahab and he slaughtered all of the Baal worshippers who were in Israel at the time. Well, this Jonadab helped him. He jumps up on the chariot with him. He rides into the slaughter with Jehu. So there's a connection there. And it's the same father you'll hear them refer to here. But the bottom line is these Rechabites, now living in Jerusalem, these nomads, in Jerusalem because of the siege, were absolutely obedient to their father's four-part command. Verse 6. He says, drink wine. They say, we shall not drink wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. So they were teetotalers. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. And you shall not plant a vineyard 
or own one, but in tents you shall dwell all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. They were true sojourners. There's a whole sermon in that. How to be a sojourner in the world. Don't drink, don't build a house, don't sow seed, and don't own a vineyard. <laughs> but the idea here, Yehonadab tells uh, the son of Rechab, or is it the other way around? Yeah, son of Rechab tells his offspring, we're going to be sojourners. That's who we are. That's what we're going to be. So I want you to follow that. The Rechabites had. They had kept his word. They had been absolutely obedient down through their generations to what their father, Jonadab, Yehonadab, had asked them to do. We have, verse 8, a obey the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us not to drink wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build houses for ourselves to dwell in. And we do not have vineyard or field or seed. We only, have, we only dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all Jonadab our father commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem before the army of the Chaldeans and before the army of the Arameans. And so we have dwelt in Jerusalem. They're still in tents. But they're in the city. And they're in the city for protection and for safety. Now this is really odd to me. Because God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down and get these people who have committed not to drink. And I want you to serve them pitchers of wine in my temple. Why would God do that? Why would God ask Jeremiah to tempt these people to drink wine? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus pray, Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation? Doesn't the Bible tell us, James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But He says, Jeremiah, I want you to bring the Rechabites in and present them with wine. Understand this. It is not temptation if God knows you won't do it. If He sets something before you that you have committed not to do and He knows that your heart is in such a place that you will not fall to that temptation, it's not temptation, it's verification. It's proving of your faith. It's validation of what you believe. It's fortification of your endurance. Sometimes the devil will try and tempt you with things that would lure you. And the Lord knows if it's something you will not cave to, He'll let it play out. Because it strengthens faith. And with the Rechabites, God knows they're not going to drink. He knows this before it ever comes about. He knows this before He asked Jeremiah. But He has Jeremiah ask them to prove their obedience. It's an object lesson. This is a living sermon before his own people of Judah, the Rechabites. Listen to verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words? Declares the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed. So they do not drink wine to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. 
Also I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them. And then you will dwell in the land which I have given you, you and your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have observed the command of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because, note this, I spoke to them, but they did not listen. And I have called them, but they did not answer. This is the fifth and final note tonight. The unheeded word. The unheeded word. He spoke, but they did not listen. The unparalleled word of God became the unheeded word in Israel and in Judah. And listen carefully, brothers and sisters, that is how a nation falls into disobedience. This is how a nation falls into rebellion and depravity when the unparalleled Word of God becomes the unheeded Word of God. Proverbs one twenty three. The Lord says, Turn to My reproof. Behold, I will pour out My Spirit on you. I will make My words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The Rechabites of chapter 35 stand in direct contrast to Judah in chapter 34. Disobedient, unrepentant, waffling in their faith, and yet the Rechabites stand obedient to their father. What have we seen tonight? We've seen from the uninterrupted line to the unbroken covenant to the unparalleled Word of God, and here the Rechabites stand as a type of those who listen. They listen. Verse 18 says, Then Jeremiah says to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father, kept all his commands, and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. That's amazing. The line of David will not fail. The line of the Levites will continue. And even the line of the Rechabites will have a man to stand before the Lord. Why? What a picture. What a picture of those who stand before the Lord. You want to be known as one who stands before the Lord, look at the Rechabites. Sober sojourners who hear and heed the unparalleled Word of God. It's that simple. God has called us to stand. Will we stand before Him? Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man.
Let's stand up together. I invite you tonight to make a covenant in your heart to the Lord to stand before Him. And however the Lord is speaking to you across these three chapters, to be one who says, I will stand up for what is true. I will stand hating and doing the unparalleled Word of God. And if you do that, let's bow our heads. We just place your hand over your heart and pray to the Lord with me. Lord, we stand before You to make a covenant with You tonight. And we recognize how solemn a thing it is. And we pass through the blood of Jesus and come before You washed and clean and forgiven because of Him. And we say, Lord, we would keep a covenant with You to follow You all the days of our life. We will be Your people. Lord Jesus, we will keep Your Word above all others. We will stand for You. And when our knees are weak, Lord, and when our faith wants to waffle, Lord Jesus, we pray by the power of Your Spirit for the strength to stand continually. And may we in that day be found faithful and able to stand when You come. We worship You and love You. Cause us to stand in Jesus' name. Amen.